11.22 says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Um, the words for the prelude is in your bulletin if you guys want to follow along as we do house of the Lord. Shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. 
There is joy here in this house of the Lord. We at First Church would like to welcome you, whether you are here in person, listening on the radio, or watching on Facebook. We are blessed that you are part of our service. For the announcements, please look over the bulletins for items that may be of interest to you. Also, uh, look to the church website. There's a lot of timely and good information there. The flowers on the altar are in honor of Tom and Ann Leffel, who celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary yesterday. They are a gift from their family. Happy anniversary to you and your families. The congregational meeting to accept nominations for officers of the consistory congregation will be held today following the 9 a.m. service. Nominations are listed in the back of the bulletin. Constitution info meetings. There will be two information and discussion meetings in January for the congregation to discuss the proposed changes to the First Church Constitution and Bylaws. The first is today after the congregational meeting down in the social room, and the second is Wednesday, January 12th at 6.30 in the social room. Next Sunday, January 16th, after the church service, we will take down the Christmas decorations. The more volunteers we have, the faster it goes. Sir Fable, help with that. The annual meeting to elect officers, hear reports from the trustees, the treasurer, the committees, and to approve the proposed 2022 budget will be held on Sunday, January 23rd, here in the sanctuary after the 9 a.m. service. At this meeting, we'll also discuss and vote on the proposed updates and revisions to the First Church Constitution and Bylaws. And now, please join, uh, rise and join me in the call to worship. It is taken from the prophet and the book of Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and I will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discharged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song, and his praise to the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea, and all that is in it, you islands, and all who live in them. Let the wilderness and its town raise their voices. Let the settlements where Cater lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. 
Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim His praise in the islands. The Lord will march out like a champion. Like a warrior, He will stir up His zeal. With a shout, He will raise the battle cry and will triumph over His enemies. Now let us sing and and praise the Lord with the songs Egypt and Build My Life.
Father, may we never forget what you've done for us. May your praises continually be on our lips. That no matter what is going on in our lives, Father, that you receive all glory and honor. Because you, you are worthy.
Praise be to God. Please be seated and send the kiddos up for children's chat. Good morning. See a couple still coming down. How was the first week back at school? Good. <laughs> is it hard to get out of bed on the day they had to go back? It always is. Okay, so we're going to be talking about building today. So I want you to think for a minute. How did they build houses back? Wood? Maybe. What else might they have used? They would have used stones. Lots and lots of stones. Can you imagine your house today being built out of stones? It'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? So uh, stones were really important in Jesus' time. And a lot of those buildings in the area that he was in were built, were built out of stone. And so G- the Bible talks about Jesus being our cornerstone. Does anybody know what a cornerstone is? I'll give you a hint. Cornerstone is the strongest piece of the building. It had to be the strongest stone because everything had to be built around the cornerstone and on top of it. So it had to be really, really, really strong in order to hold the weight of the building. And so the Bible, and First Peter, Pastor Joel is going to talk about this today, um, talks about us being living stones, us being the ones that the church helped build the church. And who do we build our lives on? Who are we building on? It's on Jesus, right? Jesus is our foundation. So I have some blocks with me today. I don't have enough stones, but we're going to try it with blocks. So this is my cornerstone, okay? It's the biggest block in our building, and I'm just going to build a tower on top and just keep stacking them. So what do you think would happen if I took this bottom block out, the cornerstone out? It would just fall. Exactly. And so that, that is just a visual for us um, to think about what Jesus is. So Jesus is the one that we build our lives on, right? So how do we build our lives on Jesus? What do we do? Can we, make, can we have a relationship with him? Yeah. Yep. He, we can make him Lord and Savior of our lives, right, and have a relationship with him. What else could we do? Could we read the Bible? Mm-hmm. We could read the Bible. We could pray. We could serve others. There's lots of ways that we can grow in our relationship with Jesus. But the most important thing is that we build our lives on him, right? Because he is our firm foundation. He is the one that when everything else in our lives feels a little bit weird and a little bit hard, he is the one that is always going to be there for us no matter what, right? Because that is who he is, and he loves us so much. So we need him as our cornerstone. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are our firm foundation, that we can build our lives on you, Lord, and that you will never be shaken, that you always you know how to care for us and love us, Lord, through every season of life. And we thank you for your strength. We thank you for your love, and we thank you for all that you are and all that you do. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Tori. Thanks, kids. You guys can head back to your seats. 
Our offering today goes to support Agape Ministries and St. Mary's, a wonderful ministry that has a great impact on not just St. Mary's, but the, the surrounding area and communities as well. I want to encourage you to, uh, if you're able to and, and feel led to give this morning, um, as the deacons come, along, come around to collect the offering, uh, the, the offering today will go to support that ministry. Um, thank you for that, and I'm glad to have the choir back after a bit of a Christmas break, uh, and so we'll turn it over to Holly and the choir for our special music.
and I invite you to pray with me. Father God, we do give you thanks this morning for who you are and everything that you've done for us. Lord, we thank you that you are good and you are faithful, that you are righteous and holy, and that you choose us, that you chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in your sight. And Lord, we know that it is only possible through Christ, that it is not of our own doing, that we cannot save ourselves, but we fully rely on what you have done for us through Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you laid down your life for us, that you died in our place so that we too can live eternally with you. We thank you for the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy and the love that you pour out into our hearts through your Holy Spirit. And may we experience that today. I pray that everyone here that's watching on Facebook, that's listening on the radio, Lord, that they would feel your goodness and your grace this morning. That they would sense the movement of your spirit in their lives. And Lord, in response to your goodness and your grace, help, help us to choose Christ, to choose to follow you, to build our lives on you, Lord, because that is what you call us to do. And so, Lord, help us to orient our lives around you, around your word, around your church, around your presence in our lives. And may we love you and serve you and worship you with everything that we are. Lord, we do pray for those that are in need this morning. We know that there is so much hurt and sickness and, and just grief, Lord, that is out there. Some, Lord, that is obvious and visible and others that we carry with us without any outward sign or visibility. But Lord, you know our hearts. You know what we carry with us. And so we ask that you would work in each and every one of our situations. Bring healing where it's needed. Bring provision, Lord, where, where things are lacking. And bring restoration and reconciliation to relationships that are broken. And Lord, we pray that in all situations that you would be glorified. Lord, we also pray for our leaders as you call us to do. And we, so we pray this day for our local government. We pray for our, the village of New Knoxville and Auglaise County and the surrounding counties and communities as well too, Lord. We ask for wisdom and guidance for our leaders that they would lead well and make decisions that are, that are right and good and that are aligned with your will. And we pray for leaders in our own church as well. And we're reminded today that leaders aren't just the ones that are, that are up front and visible. And so today we, we pray for our often invisible prayer warriors, those that, that pray for our church and our, our in individuals in our community on a regular basis. We know, Lord, that they are there. And we thank you for their faithfulness and their thank you for their trust in you as they intercede for others through prayer. Your word in, in the letter, in James's letter says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And we thank you, Lord, that that is true. And so we lift up all of these things in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Uh, the words are printed in your bulletin, but if you have your own Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to open there and follow along with us as we read from God's word. Once again, that's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I have laid a stone, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we pray now as we open it together that you would guide the thoughts of our heart and mind, that you would soften our hearts, Lord, to what you have in store for us today. And may you give me words to speak, words that are honoring and pleasing to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So you can see from, from the passage that we just read and, and Tori's wonderful children's chat that one of the main focuses of the passage here in front of us today is Jesus as that chief cornerstone. And, and maybe some of you are like those kids up here that, that aren't really sure what a cornerstone is for, right? So let's take a moment and talk about that. Uh, cornerstones nowadays serve both a practical purpose but also kind of a, uh, um, what's the right word for this, like a symbolic uh, purpose as well. If you were to go outside of our church building here, you'll notice we have a few cornerstones, and those are more symbolic than anything else. Just outside those doors, we have a cornerstone that marks the date when the original part of this building was constructed. Does anybody know what year that was off the top of your head? 18, oh, so close. 1893 is the number out there. You're one off. Yeah, 1893, this main part of the sanctuary that we're standing in or sitting in now uh, was built in 1893. Then there were obviously other additions as well. Uh, uh, I think there's one out here in this corner that says 1995. Then, of course, if you go to the ministry center, there's one that says 2011. Now, those cornerstones are, are symbolic. They're not functional in the sense of what a cornerstone is meant to do, as, as Tori explained. They're, they're symbolic in that they are meant to, to celebrate and designate the time when that building was constructed and dedicated. But a functional cornerstone is probably not visible to the eyes because it is in the foundation of the building. The cornerstone was, was the most important part of the construction because it set 
the, the standard for the rest of the building. So the cornerstone was laid in the corner of the foundation, and it was from that stone that all of the other walls were aligned. Right? Everything was lined up according to that stone. That's why that cornerstone was so important, because it, it set the standard for everything else. Carefully selected and crafted to fit that purpose. It was that perfect stone that was placed in just the right spot so that the rest of the building could be constructed and be sound and, and strong and serve its purpose. And so today we're going to be talking about Christ as our cornerstone. But here's the big idea I want to give you before we jump into the text again. Here's the big idea of the text. Believers are given a new identity when they trust in Christ as the cornerstone of their faith. Let me say that again for you. Believers are given a new identity when they trust in Christ as the cornerstone of their faith. We're going to be spending the rest of our our morning here talking about that, but we're actually going to start at the end and work our way backwards of that sentence. We're going to start by looking at Christ, the cornerstone. It says here in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning of verse 4, he actually calls him a living stone first. He's the living stone, and that connects back to chapter 1. If you remember, God has given us a living hope in Christ, and he has given us his living word to base that hope upon. And so this idea of living has already occurred. This is now the third time in 1 Peter. And now it is the living stone that, that is God's chosen cornerstone. But the stone is both rejected by human beings and accepted by God. Right? There's this contrast that's going on throughout this passage between what God accepts, what God deems as valuable and precious and chosen, and what we as human beings in general have rejected. You know, although people reject Jesus, he is God's chosen one, and he is the one who brings salvation for those who believe in him. And Jesus himself understood this, right? He's, he's going to be rejected by human beings. In Mark 8.31, as he begins to teach his disciples about what's going to happen, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected There's that same word, rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. See, Jesus knew it. Jesus understood that that even though he was God's Messiah, he was God's very own son, he would be rejected by the people he came to save. His own people did not receive him as Messiah. In fact, they crucified him instead. And people continue to reject him today, and we'll talk about more about that in just a moment. But although he is chosen, excuse me, although he is rejected by people, this living stone is chosen and precious to God. Jesus is God's very own son. Excuse me. <coughs> excuse me. Um, in Mark 1.11, as Jesus is being baptized, right, the heavens open up and there's a voice from the Father coming down. And he says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased, right? Those similar kind of words. He's chosen and precious to God. He is the beloved son and God is pleased with him. And so this, this stone is rejected by human standards, but in the sight of God, it is chosen and precious. And we'll see here in a moment that this Stone is also precious to those who put their trust in Jesus. 
And then we move on to verses 6 through 8. It says that this living stone is now called the cornerstone. These quotes are all from the Old Testament. They're from Isaiah and Psalm 118. And they're used to highlight the way that people respond to Jesus. Once again, he's described as, as chosen and precious for the second time in this passage. In this, this first quote from Isaiah, right, it highlights that only those who trust in Jesus recognize his value and worth. Those who reject him consider him worthless. But those who trust in him, those who see him for who he is, recognize his value. Jesus once told a parable about a man who, who went out in a field and found a buried treasure. Right? You see this, it's just one verse in Matthew thirteen forty four. When he goes out, when he, when he finds a treasure hidden in a field, he goes out, he hides it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought the field. Right? Think about what that person did. He sold everything in order to obtain what he thought was truly valuable and precious. Do you think Jesus is worth that cost? Right? Is Jesus precious and valuable in your sight? Let me ask you this one. What are you willing to give up in order to follow Jesus? Right? It's not an easy question to answer, is it? But those are all questions that we need to answer for ourselves. Do we truly see Jesus as chosen and precious and valuable? And those who do will find that he is the cornerstone that we build our faith on. And those who trust in him will never be put to shame. But those who reject Jesus will discover that he is a stumbling block rather than a cornerstone. These next two quotes kind of put that, turn that metaphor on its head. Instead of a cornerstone that, that is the foundation for a strong building, this cornerstone now becomes a stumbling block for those who reject him. Without Jesus, people are still blind and lost in their sin, and they still have hard and, hard and stubborn hearts. And so those who reject Jesus won't find him to be a foundation to build their lives on, but, but will find themselves tripping over him. You see, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who don't know Jesus. It just doesn't make sense. Right? Why would someone give up their life to save us? Why would we deny ourselves and give up our lives in order to love and serve him? It just doesn't make sense. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand because they are discerned only through the spirit. And that's why Paul says in one chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, those who reject Jesus, those who don't trust in him, they stumble because they disobey the message. Disobeying the message is the same as failing to trust in it. See, one of the common objections to Christianity is that it's too narrow, right? That, that Jesus, to say that Jesus is the only way to God is too exclusive for some people. They say that if God really loved us, right, if God really loved his creation, his people, he'd provide more than one way for them to be saved. But imagine this, right? Say you live in a tall apartment building. You can't really find many of those here in New Knoxville. So you've got to go outside of here right, to Dayton or Columbus or something. 
But say you live in a tall apartment building and one day you wake up in the middle of the night to a fire alarm and you discover that the building is on fire and, and your way out has been trapped, has been blocked. The elevators aren't working, the stairwell is blocked, and it seems like you have no hope for escape. But then just at the last minute, in the moment that you'd given up all hope, firefighters somehow break through that stairwell and provide a way out. And they say, come, you know, follow me. We'll get you out of here. We'll rescue you. How absurd and foolish would it be for you in that moment to say, excuse me, did you provide another way out too? Right? Like, is there another way? I don't know if I agree with the way that you just barged in here through that stairwell. I think you should have done it differently. No. Like, we're not going to do that. In that moment, you're going to be grateful and overjoyed and thankful that there was one way out. That a means of escape had been provided. And that's what God does for us in Christ. Right? He rescues us from the fires of hell. He provides a way. We should praise him for his salvation. The cornerstone, it says, will lead to the downfall of those who reject him. See, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is the judge whether we want him to be or not. And so Jesus will return, and he will judge us according to his standard. He holds all authority, and he is the standard that we will be measured against. And so we see here, there's, there's three typical responses, and this past week on January 6th was the day of Epiphany. It's the day that we celebrate the three wise men coming and visiting this child, Jesus. And then that story is found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I think that story perfectly captures three typical responses to who Jesus is. And the first is indifference. If you're familiar with the story, when the wise men come, they come to Jerusalem and they speak to King Herod looking for this king who was born. Then Herod goes on to ask the scribes and the teachers of the law where the Messiah is supposed to be born. And the scribes give them the right answer. But when they go, they just go about their way as if nothing had changed. You see, they were the ones who should have been celebrating, right? They should have shouted with joy. They, should have, they knew the facts in their heads, but they didn't know it in their hearts. They hear this Messiah, this This king was born. They knew where to look for him. But when they heard the news, they just went about their way. You see, that's the difference between knowing someone and knowing about someone. And that's, that's what makes the difference in that response. They knew about the Messiah. They knew about what to expect, but they didn't know him. As you all know, I've shared this many times before. I'm a big sports fan. I'm a Buffalo Bills fan, and today's the season finale, so, and it's actually on TV here in Ohio. So looking forward to going home and watching that today. I could tell you all about the Bills, right? I could tell you about their quarterback, Josh Allen, their wide receivers. you got Stephon Diggs and, and Gabe Davis. He's a second-year player. He's great, right? I could tell you about their defense. Uh, Tredavious White's out for the season, unfortunately, but he's probably one of their best defensive players. I know all about the Buffalo Bills. But if I ever walked up to one of them on the street, they wouldn't know me from Adam, right? Because I don't know them on a personal level. I know about them, but I don't know them. See, that's the difference there. They, They respond with indifference because they know about God, but they don't know him personally. The second response then is indignation, right? And we see that from King Herod himself. (coughs) Excuse me. 
he responds with hatred, right? He hears that this king is born, and, and the first thing he wants to do is get rid of him because he's king, and he wants to hold on to his power. He wants to hold on to his own authority. And there's people that respond with hostility towards Christ because they don't want to accept him as king of their own lives. They don't want to give him the authority and the worship that he is due. But then third, we see the right response, which is modeled by the wise men, that they worship him. The three wise men demonstrate how to appropriately respond to Jesus. They seek out this child king and they worship him. And they give him three gifts which help us understand who this child king is, right? He is God, he is, and he and the purpose that he came to serve. The three traditional gifts, of course, are gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is a gift fit for a king. Frankincense was a uh, a perfume that was used in worship in the temple. So, so they recognized that he was worthy of worship, that this was God himself. And myrrh was a perfume that was often used in burial practices. It was used in the embalming of a body. And so they knew that he was a king, that he was a God worthy of our worship, but yet at the same time that he came to die in our place. And so how we respond to Jesus, as we see here again in 1 Peter chapter 2, as well as the story of the Magi, it, how we respond determines our identity. He says here in verses 9 through 10, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here, Jesus, excuse me, Peter says that in Christ, in Jesus, we are given a new identity. That we are chosen, that we, are, we serve as priests to God. That we are holy and set apart and distinct, that we belong to him. When you trust in Jesus, he gives us a new identity, that we are now part of God's people. And that new identity means we have a responsibility to each other, right, to God, as well as to unbelievers. We have a responsibility to each other because he says that we are being like living stones, being built up into a spiritual house. Jesus is the living stone, but he makes each, each of us living stones in his image. And we're being built up, right? God is building us up to praise and worship him. Remember the purpose of a cornerstone, right? Was to lay the foundation. What's it God does for us in Christ? And, and then he takes each one of us and places us in his family as part of his church in just the right spot in order to build us up into his people. And we all fit together and serve a particular purpose. We're part of a whole. See, we're not meant to, we're not meant to go through this walk with Christ alone. Yes, we have an individual relationship with God, and we have an individual responsibility to respond to the good news of the gospel. But when we do that, he then places us in a church family. He places us in the building of God, right? So that we can encourage and support and love one another. It's like the game Jenga. Have you guys ever played Jenga? you got the, the tower of blocks, and, and the goal is to try to remove them one at a time and keep building the tower higher until it falls over. See, when we aren't here, when we 
don't participate. It's like we're taking those living stones away. And the more we take away, we start to see holes in the foundation, start to see holes in the wall, and pretty soon that tower will top over. You see, we have a responsibility to one another as members of the church to care for one another, to support one another, to make sure that we stay aligned with the true cornerstone that is Jesus. We need that Christian community. And it becomes more difficult when we start missing those stones, when there's holes in the wall. You see, when you're gone, when you're not here, it doesn't just affect you, it affects everybody else too. Because people are encouraged and supported by your presence and the gifts that you're able to bring to the table. He says that we're being built up into a spiritual house, right? In contrast to the physical temple, the physical temple, physical sacrifice is no longer necessary anymore because of Christ. But we now are the temple, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that y'all, you all, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God's presence dwells in you. You see, that was one of the main functions of the temple. Yes, it was a place of worship and prayer and sacrifices, but the main function of the temple was that it was the representation of God's presence among his people. And so we no longer need a physical building to represent that because we now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's presence dwells with us. That's why Peter says that we are being built up into a spiritual house. He's talking about God's spirit dwelling among his people. In Exodus, and this isn't just a New Testament idea either. In Exodus 19, 5 through 6, Moses says, excuse me, the Lord says through Moses, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, though the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So you have a responsibility to each other, but also to God, because he, twice in this passage, he says we are a holy or royal priesthood. See, one of the main functions of the priest was to serve God in his temple. Now, sacrifices are obviously no longer necessary because of Jesus, but we continue to offer spiritual sacrifices in its place. Romans 12:1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So you may ask, what are spiritual sacrifices? What is a living sacrifice? What does that mean? Well, there's lots of things that it could be. It could be the prayers that we offer, the songs that we sing, the way that we serve one another. Generally speaking, I would say spiritual sacrifices are the way that we love God and love others. Right? It's, the, it's, it's not just what we do here on Sunday mornings. It's an entire commitment of our lives. That's why Paul says it's a living sacrifice. Now, remember, I've said this before. What's the problem with living sacrifices? They tend to try to crawl off the altar, right? We try to live our lives the way we want to. We try to, try to do things according to our plan. But to, to offer ourselves up as living sacrifices, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God, means to orient ourselves around him and his will for our lives, not our own. Again, that's the purpose of that cornerstone, to orient our lives around Christ. And finally, we have a responsibility to unbelievers. He gives us that new identity, right? We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, <clears throat> excuse me, etc. But he says we are given that new identity so that we can declare his praises. But here's the thing about declaring his praises. That's not just to ourselves. It's to other people. 
You don't declare something to yourself. You declare it to others. It's something that you do for someone else. So we sing as praises. Yes, we offer up worship, but one of the roles of a priest was also to lead and help others worship God as well. So we have a responsibility to declare his praises so that others may hear the good news and respond. We have a responsibility to make him known to an unbelieving world. We declare his praises here in the sanctuary, yes, but we also do it every day of our lives out there too. And the reason we do this, again, is because we were all once strangers separated from God. Look at this last verse. Verse 10 here is actually an allusion to the Old Testament prophet Hosea, chapters 1 and and 2. If you're not familiar with Hosea, I'll give you a real brief summary of, of his ministry. God instructs him to go and marry a I'll say woman of ill repute. And in doing so, God is using this relationship to demonstrate his relationship with Israel. And so so Hosea and his wife Gomer have these two children, and God instructs them to name their first two kids, not my people and not loved. How would you like that for your names, right? But God is using their names to demonstrate important truth that God's people had rejected God and therefore had had been separated from him. So they were no longer loved by God and no longer his people. But then God does something extravagant. He changes their names. So they're no longer called not love. They are now loved. They are no longer called not my people. They are called my people because God's grace and love brings them back in reconciliation. And that's what Peter's alluding to here. He says, you were once not his people. Right? You were not the people of God, but now you are. You were once, you didn't once, had not received mercy, but now you have. Right? That is all of our stories. All of us, whether we grew up in the church or came into the church from outside, we have all, that is all of our stories. We were once separated from God because of our sin and have been made right with Him. Now we belong to God and have received mercy. And so, So we then want to share that good news. We declare that good news to others. We serve as God's representatives, God's priests in the world, declaring his mercy, declaring his love so that others may see it as well, so that they may also move from the darkness and into his wonderful light. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you. For your word, we thank you that you have given us a new identity in Christ, that as we put our trust in you, as we accept you and receive you as the chief cornerstone of our faith, you, you, you make us new and give us this new identity. Help us to live into it now. May we be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, your special possession, and may you use us to declare your praises, the one who brought us into this marvelous light. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you're able, I encourage you to stand as we sing our closing song, Cornerstone. The words are in your bulletin.
Amen. Just a quick reminder, if you are a member of First Church, we invite you to please stay here after the service for our brief congregation.